What do you think is the biggest hurdle of more adoption of Go in Berlin? Trying to think of an answer that does not have the word hockey stick in it. <laughs> so there's this uh, graph, right? This uh, like a Gaussian yeah, yeah, yeah. ghost-looking graph of a language of adoption. So in the beginning, it's just very few. Then there is a huge peak that many people are adopting. And then there is just the ripples of uh, not that many people left to be adopters. So I think we're towards the end of that uh, peak or of that ghost. So there's already a lot of people who have done that adoption. This episode is brought to you by Square. Millions of businesses depend on Square partners to build custom solutions using Square products and APIs. When you become a Square Solutions partner, you get to leverage the entire Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for Square sellers. You don't just get access to SDKs and APIs. You get access to the exact SDKs and the exact APIs that Square uses to build the Square platform and all their applications. This is a partnership that helps you grow. Square has partner managers to help you develop your strategy, close deals, and gain customers. There are literally millions of Square sellers who need custom solutions so they can innovate for their customers and build their businesses. You get incentives and profit sharing. You can earn a 25% SaaS revenue share, seller referrals, product bounties, and more. You get alpha access to APIs and new products. You get product, marketing, tech, and sales support. And you're also able to get Square certified. You can get training on all things Square so you can deliver for Square sellers. The next step is to head to changelaw.com slash Square and click become a solutions partner. Again, changelaw.com slash Square. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog so you don't miss it. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Welcome everyone, it's great of you to join us to this episode about the Berlin ecosystem and how the slowly transition to go has happened. And I am joined by my co-organizer, Ole. Hi Ole. Hi, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine, <laughs> thanks. Nice to meet you, great honor to be on the show. Yeah, we've been uh, Zooming for two years now. Once we, the meetup is going to go back to in-person, it's just going to be weird at some point. But just as it was weird transitioning to Zoom, it's going to be weird transitioning, but we'll, we'll manage. So, Ole, you are a back-end engineer since the 90s. That's your fun catchphrase. And you've been working in different companies that are big and small. And you had lots of projects that you saw fail and succeed. And you love being part of the Go community and you're working for Ardan Labs. And hey, you're my co-organizer at the Go user group. Since we were just trying to remember as we were uh, preparing for this call. So we said like, what was it? 2017, 18? 2017, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you are writing open source software in Go, but also maybe not. <laughs> Nowadays in Go. Yeah. So backend engineer since the 90s. Mm -hmm. Before we dive into, into what does that mean, for those of you who listen and don't know, Ole and I are co-organizing the Go user group together with Tim, who is not joining us today. And we've been meeting in person for a while, and then we've been meeting in Zoom for a while, and we're still in, on Zoom, but we do look to moving back to in-person sometime soon. And the Berlin user group actually exists since 2011, which is, I think, before both of us were using Go which is pretty fun. So that was when it was very early released and definitely before any stable version came out. So the, the Berlin Go community is uh, is old, but it's also definitely growing. So it's always changing. Mm -hmm. What is your impression of the Go user group in Berlin or the Go community? Also those who are not coming to the user group. Yeah. I'm uh, very happy uh, with that and, and uh, to be part of it, of course. 
And I think in Germany, at least, it seems to be the by far the biggest and most active. So I'm very happy with that and can assure you when you live in Berlin, you can find enough companies probably for the rest of your developer life <laughs> only working on Go. So this is quite nice, I think. Definitely, uh, I can say the same. I would agree with this. Okay, so back to the original catchphrase of your uh, introduction. You've been a backend developer since the 90s. So you, you were the OG hipster in Berlin. Yeah, in the 90s, I've been working with Java and we built our own like frameworks for backend stuff. And I had a, uh, a swing front end and we were using RMI uh, in between and this remote method invocation or something. Mm -hmm. It was a bit like this Korba thing. And uh, yeah, most people don't remember probably. And we were building our own frameworks uh, for each project, kind of. And and this was just everything done yourself. You would be the true inventor sometimes when you were <laughs> one of the first on the project. And yeah, nowadays you have a bit more of kind of standards and uh, libraries and so on. And you're not supposed to build everything yourself. Mm -hmm. But in the old days, this could be a lot of fun. But yeah, when you had someone who who had fun with it, but didn't know the requirements, it could be go really bad too. <laughs> I guess um, Go is also not that many frameworks, yeah. but also I guess less just common to use one. Yeah, and one thing I love about Go also is that it feels like the the old times of Java where I could say, oh, this is just Java code and I can dive into it and understand it quickly. And this works pretty well with Go too. Often the common libraries aren't like 100 calls deep or and with lots of very abstractions and, and whatever thing. Mm -hmm. They're usually quite straightforward and easy to understand. And occasionally I can quickly find a bug and fix it or something like that. And yeah, this is all nice. So after Java, what was the language or languages that you were using? Well, I, I got fed up with Java a bit and then I tried Python for a while. Mm -hmm. And Python, the language, I don't mind too much. But back then it was all compared to uh, Ruby and PHP. And you got usually a job at kind of an agency and and this was really uh, tough and not relaxed working there. And especially when things didn't turn out the way they were originally planned somehow. And then this wasn't so much fun. And then I went back to Java because mm. I thought, oh, um, the language might be nicer, but uh, no, the working conditions are not. And then <laughs> I just went back to Java and then I, I found Go later. It started a little bit uh, when the first came out, like 2009, I think 2010 or something. I started using it a little bit for a mm -hmm. small pet project. And Wait, so how did you hear about it? Oh, just in the news somewhere. It was not the German news, probably. I think by the first time Go was mentioned in the German news was like 2017. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm kidding. But definitely not around release time. Yeah, yeah. So it was way before one zero at least, and it never catched up to one zero. I I stopped it, but it was a nice experience, and mm -hmm. I just didn't know where uh, it would go and whether there would be a true market for it. And mm -hmm. then I said, okay, maybe maybe I should keep with Java a bit longer and kept with that. And then in, in 2015, 2016, I joined the Berlin uh, user group and understood that Go does have a market that Java couldn't reach, especially the, the lower latency uh, services mm -hmm. and so on, right? Like uh, for advertisement bidding and uh, cloud tech and so on, where you need low latency. This can sometimes work with Java, but when the garbage collection kicks in, it doesn't work at all anymore. And Yeah. Yeah. So I started to see that this is really something to it that makes total sense. And 
I got more and more into it and was happy to get a full-time job when I got a chance. Would you say that the ecosystem, the techie ecosystem of Berlin in the 90s was uh, mostly Java? I think no. I've been a few times uh, told that it would be easier to get a job if I would be a C-sharp developer instead. C-sharp, yeah. Yeah, so the standard competition Mm -hmm. back in those days, right? You either, uh, when you wanted to do business uh, software, it was either Java or Mm C-sharp. And so, yeah, and companies like Siemens, they said, yeah, well, we have the odd Java projects to somewhere, but we would really rather use C-sharp <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind. And then, um, yeah, maybe I'm not such a big fan of it. <laughs> and yeah. And uh, how did you see the languages change in, as the ecosystem was uh, developing and specifically in Berlin? Like what, what languages, what tech stacks did you see over the years to the 90s? the 2000s to the 2010s kind of give us a travel down the history lane. As I said, it started in the wild old days where you would develop your own framework for everything, uh, every new project. You started with a clean sheet and then first thought what would be great to have and then started building that. And later you had in the Java world also all these frameworks, some very big, others like Spring Framework has been the the small and lean one for many years at least. And yeah, I saw that evolve and getting bigger and bigger and more refined, but also uh, more overhead. And after Java got its generics and that aren't very trivial to understand, especially since Java supports uh, like a proper um, inheritance. This uh, makes generics a lot more complicated too. Mm-hmm. And then these uh, annotations in Java that are really nice to uh, write, but uh, very hard to debug because there is some code executed that you've never seen and you mm-hmm. can't reach it anyhow while with a normal debugger or so. Since the annotation itself doesn't even point to the real code that is uh, just looking for the annotation and then doing something interesting. And you, yeah, it's really difficult. And so I uh, was more and more fed up with it. And then I thought maybe the language, there's still some good core to it. And I tried to make people happy and, and adopt that a bit more. And then I realized that the community really loves these frameworks and that you can do powerful things in three lines, except that this... Were there Java meetups in Berlin at the time? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I've been to Java um, meetups, uh, not so much in Berlin. Back in those days, I've been living near Nuremberg mm-hmm. and have been Java meetups there. Around what year was that? Like, was it the 2000s before, after? Around 2010. Mm-hmm. I moved to Nuremberg from Berlin in 2008 and moved back in 2015. And so, like, six and a half years. And so, until 2008, you were then in Berlin. So, in, it yeah. was a lot of Java. That was, yeah, at least my projects were all Java, yeah. Yeah. In the, well, of course, other languages too. As I said, C-sharp would have been sometimes easier to get a position with. When I joined the Berlin ecosystem in uh, 2013 or so, I saw a lot of PHP everywhere. Ah, okay, yeah. When did that happen? When did you see that transition happen? Oh, uh, PHP. I mean, this was a completely different community, I think. I think they never really com- have a competition between those bigger corporations and those who w- were willing to invest money. They use Java and then mm-hmm. the internet agencies and people who want to get something quickly and up and running and for like cheap money and use a lot of interns or whatever. And they were using PHP. And would you say that Berlin... Let's say before the 2010, so like in the 90s and the 2000s, was it more startups or was it more corporates? The startups started a bit later. I uh, think 
in the 2000s, this was more uh, corporates, at least what I uh, saw, mm -hmm. and then small world companies doing something. And then yeah, when I left, there were the first startups there and something, I think SoundCloud was one of the first. Mm -hmm. I've been eyeing Berlin also, uh, possibly going back there like in 2012 or something or mm -hmm. 13. And it still didn't look that professional to me. It, it didn't take a thorough look, I have to admit. And, and SoundCloud, you didn't know how they would earn money and so on. And they didn't have find a real good way and I thought, well, if it's all either not so interesting technology-wise or you don't know if they ha do have a business model or not, if it is a bit, then maybe I stay away and then I eyed uh, London back after those days and realized that London is just too hard. Uh, you have to be too focused. Yeah. And then I, a few years later, I took another look at uh, Berlin and then I thought, hey, it has developed in a good way and I'm happy to go back. So around uh, the 2010s mm. is when uh, Berlin started getting some startups and it also started, uh, it translates basically to more PHP developers, but also that's the around the time that Go was joining the, the awareness of the world. So Go kind of became online. And this is also around the time that the Berlin Go user group started. So uh, around that time, how did you, what can you tell us about Berlin in the early 2010s and the, and the ecosystem and the companies and the languages and the, why somehow, it is my feeling that there was more PHP mm -hmm. is, is accurate or is it just oh. what I saw? Possible. I mean, I think I heard Ruby a lot also, not only PHP, right? I yeah. Oh, true, true. Very good point. Yeah. Also, a lot of these startups, when they are very technical, they have been using Ruby a lot. And, true. And sometimes PHP and then very technical ones like SoundCloud, they uh, use Go and things like that. Yeah. yeah, there were some early adopters of Go yeah. in Berlin among all the startups. Yeah, this is good for us still, right? We are still living a little bit of that, like Björn Rammstein, right? <laughs> we still have him <laughs> at our meetup sometimes. Yeah, yeah. A co-creator of Prometheus. Exactly. Which is written in Go. Yeah. Yeah, so in the early 2010s, kind of going down the, the history lane, so that's around that time, basically more startups started being created in Berlin. It was not just corporate world, so it translated technologically to not just Java, but also Go, more PHP, more Ruby, as you said. And then how did you see the last decade between the early 2000s and 10s to the early 2020s, which is today? I think it all matured a lot more. And, and we have, uh, especially in the Go community now, adoption beyond the classical startup community, right? that it's not only real startups or like X startups like Amazon or Google uh, that are using Go, but you have some kind of old school companies also. I've been to an like old school logistics company invited to for an interview. So and they were using Go sometimes. And so that's really nice. I'm quite happy uh, with that, that it broadens and adoption gets up. Of course, it changes the community too, right? And you have different topics and to see what is useful now and so on. It's, we have to adopt as a meetup also because yeah. the requirements are just a bit different. This episode is brought to you by Chronosphere. When it comes to observability, teams need a reliable, scalable, and efficient solution so they can know about issues well before their customers do. They need a solution that helps them move faster than the competition. And companies born in the cloud-native era often start with Prometheus for monitoring, which is obviously an amazing piece of software, 
but they quickly push it to its limits and often outgrow it. They run into issues with siloed data, missing long-term storage, and wasted engineering time firefighting the monitoring system versus delivering their application with confidence. They describe the system as a house of cards, where a single developer's seemingly benign change can overload the whole monitoring system, or they say they're flying blind because they pride themselves on making data-driven decisions, but losing visibility means they lose this competitive edge. Ryan Sokol, VP of Engineering at DoorDash, has this to say about Chronosphere, quote, the visibility and control that Chronosphere's platform gives us to manage our observability data and costs are a game changer, especially with our unprecedented growth, end quote. Chronosphere is the observability platform for clouding of teams operating at scale. Learn more and get a demo at chronosphere.io. Again, chronosphere.io. I think one interesting thing about Berlin becoming more of a startup ecosystem in the tech is that there were a lot of people who immigrated to Berlin and that kind of made Berlin very, probably definitely was very international, but also the tech of Berlin remained very international. So um, when you kind of first think of technology in the context of Germany, you one might think of car industry and the very traditional German industries. But that's very much not Berlin. Our user group, I think, pretty early on was in English and definitely since then remained in English. And I think a very large part of the developers that I know, they're only speaking English and some German. And <laughs> I only worked in startups in Berlin. I never worked in a large company. But I can say that in all those companies that I worked, it was a, at most one third German speakers and do you think it has something to do with uh, the adoption of languages like Go and like Ruby? You mean that that uh, the internationality with the yeah. somehow it's linked, but I don't think it's a cause and effect directly. I mean, the traditional companies and the startups compete for employees, I think, in a bit different way. Mm -hmm. right? the, the traditional companies say, okay, you get some, some okay-ish salary and you can stay here for many, many years and uh, you will be safe. And they attract a lot of people who want stability. Mm -hmm. And the startup scene attracts people who want to see something interesting and something new and want to try out things, even if it doesn't always work and so on, right? This, this is just a different kind of people also. Yeah. And so this is a, yeah, a bit of a different market and they are more international since they say, well, we don't matter where you come from or so. You're, in the end, we need your code and this has to be good. And when you can work uh, well along with all the others, uh, we are fine with that. And so they can get great employees from all around the world, kind of. And that's nice, of course. But in the traditional companies, they have a culture where everything is in German. And this would be very difficult for them to compete on that level. So they, they are just have like two different markets, I think. Yeah, to the listeners who are not familiar with the concept of, uh, or generally with how German work contracts work, it's common that you get a contract that mentions a probation period of average six months, during which it is possible to terminate the employment within a week or a couple of weeks notice. It kind of depends, and this is mutual. So if you don't like it, you can quit yeah. and give a few weeks notice. And if the employer doesn't like something in the setup, it's possible. But then after those probation six months, it's becoming kind of permanent position. And then as an employer, it's uh, becoming significantly harder to fire. So you have to show that you have um, brought it to the attention of the employee, that the performance is not as expected. And then you created um, a working plan together and then you 
revisit it several times and then you put some as an employer you put some efforts into for example training and giving some resources to the employee and so it's a quite a long process to fire an employee and from the employee side for you to quit it's uh, something like three months notice as a employee and if you're in a management position it can also be six months notice so it's very different from what some listeners from other places might know yeah so when you say all of this stability, this is the thing kind of that people definitely would like in a company. And it's not unusual that people work five and 10 years in the same company and year, even if it's a technical company. It's not necessarily a startup, but it's a technical company. So this type of contract is a, the legal requirement in Germany. So you have the same also in a startup. But I guess less people are looking for that and uh, especially if we kind of go back to 10 years ago or so when Go just started and some companies here adopted that. So the people who would be keen on trying this and don't necessarily live in Berlin would be the people, so the profile of such people would be young people who don't have lots of commitments, for example, kids who have to go to a specific school and they're able to easily relocate. And then they're like, well, I want to work in Go, I will relocate to Berlin. But the profile of such people is many times also not necessarily speaking German. So that's kind of how startups got this interesting culture that is a very Berliner thing. This, uh, um, everybody has an accent and speaks a second and a third language and not just a programming language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say this is the same what we see in our meetups, that this is people who are international people usually speak yeah. some languages, usually are not from Berlin? Yeah, definitely. Would you say that the Go developers that you know switched mostly from Java, from Ruby, from PHP, from some other language? Oh, there are many different backgrounds, I think. Mm -hmm. I've, oh, it's from JavaScript, from uh, Ruby, PHP, uh, yeah, quite a lot from Java mm -hmm. also. I can't remember a single Java project that I did in this almost 20 years <laughs> that I nowadays wouldn't rather do in Go. So. Yeah, probably it's natural that we have a lot of uh, Java developers in the uh, ex-Java developers in the Go community nowadays. But yeah, otherwise there are a lot of uh, different languages. Also, Swear, but sometimes you have an odd C or C plus plus developer who didn't like that uh, complexity and so on anymore, and hunting down memory bugs and. Probably they moved on to Rust now, but maybe there's still someone. Yeah, interesting uh, to see. Would you say that you saw some startups built with Rust recently here? I know some companies who are hiring Rust developers, but I don't know if they are, they are I think, not pure Rust mm -hmm. companies or something like that. It's, I suppose Rust would be too tedious to develop your whole business on it. But some very technical parts uh, probably make sense and can pay off. The Go companies that you know from Berlin, mm -hmm. would you say there are more that started in Go or would you say that there are more that changed to Go or something in between that some just added, some rewrote or added services in Go, so something in between? Yeah, I think there are different companies. So some were just built up uh, on Go, like these advertisement builders or so, who saw that this is the, the language they need to be able to develop quickly and uh, efficiently and also have the short latency and that they need to be able to compete. And then other companies like the fintechs who wanted to do banking, but in cool. And so they didn't want to use Java, but in cool, so they use Go. So they start always go. And then there are like bigger companies that often are a bit more polyglot and then sometimes have a Go project and sometimes they use Java or Kotlin or whatever else. And yeah, this is, I think these two types I see quite a lot and some in between, of course that still have something old running somewhere or uh, trying to get rid of it or have been able to switch fully to Go after they once started with a Ruby or PHP prototype or first version or whatever you want to call it. 
I don't think this is bad, right? I can imagine starting something with Ruby or so, mm -hmm. getting something up and running quickly. And when you see that the smallest instance of some virtual machine on Amazon or so doesn't work out anymore, you have to scale, then it's maybe a good time to uh, switch to Go because you seem to have a product market fit and then you can rebuild this with something more durable, invest some money because you earn some and could be a model that works well for me. Yeah. With the adoption of Go by enterprises mm -hmm. that happened uh, in the recent few years, how do you see this reflect in the Berlin tech ecosystem? I see that this is, we, we even more use like web APIs is even more important than mm -hmm. before. And otherwise, they, they aren't so visible usually. You, mm -hmm. They don't do lots of talks. They are often more consumers than producers. Of content? Yeah, of content. And mm -hmm. also, I think uh, when I remember when I've been at these uh, companies myself or worked for them while having working for a consulting company, there wasn't this culture of producing something and showing it around mm -hmm. so much. You sometimes showed something, but this was a big thing. And you would think about this a long time and so on. This was what was really rare. And you would expose yourself a lot and do this maybe once a year or something. And mm -hmm. yeah, and then get comments about it like the next three months or so, right? This mm -hmm. <laughs> was a big deal. And they don't have such a culture. And I think it's also got to do with this mentality that there are more the, the risk-averse uh, people attracted mm -hmm. by those companies. And so they don't like to expose themselves so much. And mm -hmm. yeah, and this is probably reason why we don't see them so much as speakers in the meetup yeah yeah sometimes you see someone especially when it's a bigger conference or something or something who got someone who got paid for it or so right then you do but we usually do preparing something in our spare time and then uh, going somewhere wherever people would be willing to listen or something that yeah this is uh, much more rare than i think yeah. And startups is kind of different, right? Yeah. Startups is uh, just doing a guess, trying it out, and then see what feedback comes back and then mm -hmm. adopt and do again, right? And the same you can do with uh, interacting with other people, with uh, presentations, with giving talks or, uh, yeah, going to a podcast or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting to hear what large enterprises are doing, and it is harder to reach, but they definitely can tell different stories, especially about the scale. So if any enterprise gophers are listening, please give a talk. We want to hear your talk at our meetup or at any local meetup that you have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've seen some uh, applications and scale wasn't such a big topic there. So it's not like the, the traditional or Google scale like uh, thousands of requests or millions of requests per second or something like that. What I've seen more as a scale problem in enterprises was that you had to scale to many developers and to, to a large number of people working on, on the overall project. So the, the whole development process with all of the business analysts and whatever else you had would have to work nicely and so on. And this kind of scale is, I think, the, the more important one in at least the biggest parts of the corporate world. So the Go Meetup, how did you hear about that and when? Oh, I think it uh, was when I tried or was thinking about moving back to Berlin mm -hmm. and I wanted to dive into the tech scene uh, deeper and... Mm -hmm find out how it uh, is and, and what it looks like and 
Then I yeah, was just searching for meetups in Berlin and uh, found a few. And then the Go meetup was one of them. So you were searching for technical meetups in general, not specifically the Go one. Yeah, no, exactly. I, when I first uh, went to Berlin back, I've been starting a Java job here. Mm -hmm. And this company has later switched to Ruby. Mm -hmm. And I started doing the switch with the company But I realized for, for getting becoming as good in Ruby as I've been in the Java world before, I would need like 10 years or something since the ecosystem and language has too big of a history. Mm. This would be very hard to catch up. And then I took another look at Go and uh, thought, well, this is way easier to get into. And it's uh, more interesting also that it's some technical traits that make it more interesting. And I can build like cooler applications that would be very hard to do in, in Ruby or Java or something. And then I was convinced. And then can you compare the Go meetup, when it, how it was when you started coming versus how it is these days? Well, I think it, uh, it is a bit different. So... Back in the days, it was way more technical. I mean, every talk was technical, kind of, I think, and at least those that I remember. <laughs> and you had always some people talking about uh, what they have done or were planning to change on the Go compiler itself or the toolchain or something. This was way more common also to hack on Go itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's still doable and possible, but it's not that common anymore. And uh, I think that the community has changed also that you have a harder time to find those diehard techies nowadays. So how would you describe the talks these days? Yeah, these days, uh, still, we have, uh, of course, quite some technical talks, but mm -hmm. they don't dive as deeply and don't talk like uh, half the time about a few uh, microseconds that have been saved somewhere usually. And <laughs> yeah, so it's still, uh, we, we do have interesting technical talks, right? Uh, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> But it's not all about it, right? Uh, we see that there are a lot of other challenges in real life. And for many projects, the goal is just quick and uh, everything enough. Uh, they, they never uh, optimize something for years or so. They never see a reason to optimize a single bit about their Go code somewhere. And so you just don't talk so much about it, even if it's interesting to listen sometimes, but it's not that useful in the end. And I would probably describe this somewhat similarly that the first talks were about about Go and kind of on the language itself. And the more recent ones are things I do with Go at work, things I do with Go for my fun. But yeah, it's a good distinction, kind of the difference between in Go and with Go. And I wonder if it's the same in conference talks also. It would be interesting to, to kind of compare that over the years. I think this changed a little too. But yeah. It probably has something to do with the fact that in the beginning or years ago, the language was more like a hipster thing to try for fun and people who were doing that and coming to talk about that were doing this because they want to. And now there's more and more people who are gophers because that's their job and they may have hacking fun projects in like Rust or Haskell or, or just no hacking projects. So yeah, you get kind of more practical talks. Yeah. But what do you think is the, Biggest hurdle of uh, more adoption of Go in Berlin? Trying to think of an answer that does not have the word honky stick in it. <laughs> so there's this uh, graph, right? This uh, like a Gaussian yeah, yeah, yeah. ghost looking graph of a language of adoption. So in the beginning, it's just very few. Then there is a huge peak that many people are adopting. And then there is just the ripples of uh, not that many people left to be adopters. So I think we're towards the end of that. Uh, peak or of that ghost. So there's already a lot of people who have done that adoption. And in the beginning, it was more word of mouth and reading, like you said, 
on the news and so on. And uh, now it's more, yeah, because you have to, because you're, that's your job and companies will keep adopting Go, but probably because we have kind of behind us or right now the, as fast as it gets, it's just not going to be this fast anymore. So we will see gophers joining, but I think it will not be as many. The velocity of joining, <laughs> the derivative of that uh, is not going to be positive for longer. It's going to be more people, but less every time kind of join us. This last week or this week was Google I.O. And this is kind of the, the conference that Google organizes for their for people who are community organizers like us and for developers and for people who participate in their different programs. And Go was mentioned. And before this year, it happened once sometime, I think in 2015. And in between every year in Google, it was just not brought up. Although this is a language that came from that origin. So that's another interesting signal. I asked you earlier, how did you join the Go community? So the way that I joined the Go community is when I, sometime after I moved to Berlin, I just went to a conference. I, I don't even remember how I heard about that anymore, but it was the DevFest, which is the annual conference of the different uh, Google developer groups in Berlin. So the Go user group, the Android user group. And uh, at the time, I think there was also the general Google developer group kind of, and that's it. There were less Google developer group communities at the time, and they joined forces to give a, a, an annual conference, which is kind of a mini local Google I.O., if you will. And at the time, I was working in a company that was using Go, and then I overheard in a hallway conversation something about Go, and I joined that conversation, and then somebody said, oh, you should join our user group. And this was a, the person, Surma, who at the time was the organizer of the user group, and so... He said, you should join the meetup. I joined the meetup. And then he said, you should help me organize because I was telling him how I used to be as a student, very active in the student organization and doing events for students and so on. And he said, it's pretty much the same. It's just the adult version of that. And uh, <laughs> that's how I joined on board. Cool. That was end of 2013, early 2014, I think. Cool. A long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, the Go meetup was almost three at the time. So that was already nicely going on. In English, yeah. which is definitely fun. Felt inclusive in that uh, sense that you don't need to be a German speaker to be able to participate. Yeah, great. Yeah. I think back to this topic of adoption of Go uh, nowadays, I think we will have, as you said, the adoption curve will flatten a bit. And mm -hmm. But I also think the, the new members and, and people joining and the meetup will probably flatten a bit more mm -hmm. because the big companies, there are more the people, as you said, who use Go because they are paid for it. Yeah. And they are less likely to go to any meetup at all because they aren't paid for it, right? And this is not too bad if we don't see uh, user numbers grow as before. This can be a sign that uh, just of maturity kind of and still adoption can uh, grow beyond the rate of the, the members of the meetup or something like that. Yeah, I, I definitely hope that this uh, signal of uh, including a talk about Go in Google I.O. would be a nice push towards that end of that curve that mm -hmm. would bring those people on board. And I definitely hope that this will also mean more talks for our meetups. Yeah, that would be nice, of course. Right? I would be very welcome uh, if we get a new wave of talks uh, from companies we've never heard of so far <laughs> that they would uh, be using Go at all, right? Yeah, it would be really fun. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Find your most perplexing application issues. Honeycomb is a fast analysis tool that reveals the truth about every aspect of your application in production. 
Find out how users experience your code in complex and unpredictable environments. Find patterns and outliers across billions of rows of data and definitively solve your problems. And we use Honeycomb here at Changelove. That's why we welcome the opportunity to add them as one of our infrastructure partners. In particular, we use Honeycomb to track down CDN issues recently, which we talked about at length on the Kaizen edition of the Ship It podcast. So check that out. Here's the thing. Teams who don't use Honeycomb are forced to find the needle in the haystack. They scroll through endless dashboards playing whack-a-mole. They deal with alert floods, trying to guess which one matters. And they go from tool to tool to tool playing sleuth, trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that are slowly killing teams' effectiveness and ultimately hindering their business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. With Honeycomb, you guess less and you know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. And by Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. The platform is a versatile Kubernetes operator for handling cluster deployments the GitOps way. And I'm here with Kelsey Hightower, angel investor and advisor to Acuity. Kelsey, why are you excited about Argo CD and what's happening here with Acuity? When I think about Argo CD, it represents the transition from traditional CI CD. You know, you have a big server with a built-in workflow engine, and you can only do what that system can do, whether it's Jenkins, whether it's Spinnaker, you name it. Those things are tend to be all-in solutions, and they're all predicated on having like their own built-in workflows, UIs, and ways of doing things. And then when I think about kind of the Argo CD, that whole open source movement kind of backed by the ideas we saw in the Kubernetes world, which was each of those steps is nothing more than just a step in a workflow. And after 10, 20 years of doing CI/CD, how best to represent those steps? And it turns out this whole container thing is probably the best way to have little snippets of logic sit at each of those steps in the workflow, and then you can kind of exchange them and share them to build any pipeline you want. So the way to look at this is Kubernetes has never had a workflow engine or tool. And so when you think about kind of Argo workflow or Argo CD, which is kind of a specialized workflow, kind of attacking the, how do you roll out software problem? That's the way I would think about it. So if you're all in on Kube and you like the Kubernetes ecosystem, then you kind of have a choice of workload types. And I would probably just say it's another workload type you can put in your toolbox. So if you got something that can benefit from a workflow engine and reuse the logic that you already have in containers, it kind of feels like the perfect fit. The perfect fit. All right. Thanks, Kelsey. Well, the next step is to head to acuity.io slash changelog. They are inviting all of our listeners to join the closed beta. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. Do you think there's any connection between how the Berlin ecosystem is having lots of gophers and uh, lots of companies with Go and how the Go user group is uh, very early on? So did one influence the other? If yes, which did which? Or if not, what is that connection between the ecosystem and the Go community in Berlin that you see? I think it's always like intertwined a bit. I mean, we... We had lucky these early adopter companies, and then with some good Go developers, and then uh, this created a Go community. And then there were these companies uh, where people said, "Well, we do have enough developers here in Berlin. We can bet on Go." And mm-hmm. then they could attract more uh, Go developers from other parts of the world, and. Now we have nice uh, Go ecosystem here and, and quite a big community. And I think still the number of developers that you can find uh, for a company here is still the limiting factor. Yeah. I think this is still when you show to a manager, hey, Go is uh, optimal for this kind of system that you want to build. Then he says, well, but I asked my developers that I can uh, get and, and I have already here and they don't know much about Go. And so it's hard to uh, get them to try it. Mm-hmm. 
And this is, I think, still the, the limiting factor somehow. Yeah, that's definitely that. And this will definitely make a difference because it's more happening in larger companies and larger, of course, it's harder to convert, but it will bring more. And to convert one large company, you have a, a lot of developers joining. You mentioned the relocating to Berlin for Go. So uh, for those who are not familiar with uh, working in Europe in generally as a developer and specifically in Berlin and Germany, there are very easy visas that your employer can issue for you so it's uh, a lot easier than a green card you kind of need a recognized degree from university and just kind of the rest is bureaucracy pretty much and it's also possible without a recognized degree as well it's slightly harder but still definitely manageable and a lot easier than a green card so if anybody's in considering to relocate here just know that it's uh, pretty easy because there is a high demand I think the contract uh, that you get from the company is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And then with that, uh, you can, the rest, get rolling somehow. Yeah, especially from within the EU or something like that, it's quite easy. And when you are from outside, it's getting a bit more difficult. But yeah. still do have Yeah, for those who are inside the EU, you don't need to do anything. You just yeah. move here and start working. But for those who want to come from abroad, the visa, the sun. It's called the blue card. It's uh, rather straightforward. It's uh, There's no quotas on that to start with. It does simplify things. And as anything in the, in the world in the last few years, our meetup as well switched uh, from in-person to virtual. Can you share your insights on that? Ooh, yeah. I mean, uh, at the start, it was quite exciting, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we thought, oh, we tried to keep it all running and do it, everything uh, exactly the same as before and after a while we saw that it's not that exciting anymore and people start to get zoom fatigue and whatever uh, numbers were a bit decreasing and then we saw that uh, we got more international adoption like people from india or anywhere in the world mm. joining which was really nice too but in the end it's don't have the same energy as if you really can meet people in person and can just have a small chat afterwards and so on. This is it's not the same relaxed uh, atmosphere that you can create in in a in person meetup. So I'm I'm missing that myself a bit. I have to admit. For sure. And we had some attempts of uh, saying maybe next month we'll try and maybe in spring we'll try, but then always uh, numbers were against us and regulations and whatnot. You mentioned that we had decrease in attendance, uh, but they changed the character to be more international. That's uh, definitely something uh, interesting. And I think one of the things we did that allowed us to kind of stay active throughout this time is to to make things regular. So at the time, at the past, we met once a month always. It was since forever. It was always once a month, but it would move around when in the month. And then at some point, we anchored the second Wednesday of the month, and we started recording and then uploading this to YouTube. So less attendance, but this instead kind of compensates with more people watching the YouTubes which is probably convenient in a way that you don't have to attend in the evening when you cannot, but you can watch this at the time that you want. So you still get that content, but you definitely miss out on the connection. And we do look to get back in person, maybe this uh, spring slash summer, which is exciting. And it will change things again. So we'll see if the Zoom fatigue is being replaced with, uh, I'm used to not leaving the house. So I'm not going to come to events fatigue. <laughs> maybe yes maybe not definitely a global thing to think about which is uh, maybe something you all agree with maybe something that you don't agree with but uh, this uh, definitely is a type of an opinion just like our unpopular opinion I actually think you should probably leave Ole, I heard a rumor that you have two unpopular opinions. Yeah, that is true. 
Yeah, well, the first is a bit of a meta opinion. Mm -hmm. So uh, my first unpopular opinion is that I think the popularity of an opinion depends more on the audience than on the opinion itself. So hmm. a very good example would be stating that Go is a low latency, low overhead programming language. And when you tell this to some JavaScript or Ruby or Go developers, they will all nod and say, oh, yeah, cool, that's popular. And when you tell this to some C, C++ developers or Ruby or uh, <laughs> Rust developers or so, they might say, no, 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 that's not <laughs> low latency. I've seen the overhead is like 10 times higher than anything that I built and so on. <laughs> this is something quite different. And I think the audience is a major factor. Okay, so to, in order to be ranked high in the unpopular opinion list of go time, you want to optimize for something that is very unpopular with Go developers. So I could now state an opinion like Go is a very slow, uh, large latency and whatever language. Um, no, I, I don't think I will find an opinion like that, that it's, uh, I'm a girl for myself, come on. <laughs> but maybe I have a second opinion that is a bit more more broader mm -hmm. also. Is that optimized for the Go crowd? No, no, it's not. <laughs> I think it's optimized more in general for the IT crowd. Uh -huh. And it's more about how universities and so on work. Mm -hmm. Because they all do something very nice abstract and like a lot of algorithms and data structures or how to create programming languages and how to study them or how to work and implement databases and so on. But in the end, there are only very, very few uh, students who truly work on this later mm -hmm. in their real life. When they ever leave university, this is less than a promille really working on these very interesting problems. But we have like 99.99% of the people coming from universities never get such interesting problem in their lives. And so they have a tendency often uh, for over-engineering. I think a lot of the over-engineering we see in the real world stems from the discrepancy that we have between the problems we learn to solve at universities and the problems that we have uh, in real life and or lack of problems, maybe. Interesting. I will not lie. I feel a little bit attacked. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Over-engineering is a definitely topic uh, I have heard in the past. That sure is interesting. I agree with you that, uh, unfortunately, this is not so unpopular, at least in our little sample group. I agree with you that the type of skills and the views on programming that you get in university is uh, mostly not transferable and things that would be should be taught on more is how to read other people's code because so much of the work that you do in university is just right from scratch which is also not something you do often definitely not alone and also learning to accept and consider things like uh, trade-offs in the context of actually business value still hard for me to sometimes let go of uh, doing the right thing versus doing the thing that is more efficient on the business part. I have sinned in that multiple times in the past and uh, still ongoing. And uh, maybe if I would have learned more in university, more programming in the context of uh, this is the right thing and this is the efficient thing, it would have done this transition easier for me, sure. So uh, I'm sorry, Ole, I agree with you. I agree with your unpopular opinion. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have a survey on Twitter and we'll see how many people agree. Okay. Yeah, fun. Thanks a lot for joining. We talked about so many different interesting things and we'll definitely include in the show notes also all the things that uh, we mentioned and are relevant. And join the meetup. Join our user group if you want to see Ole and me. Yeah, please do. Thank you, Ole. All welcome. Have a good evening. Bye. All right. That is our show for this week. Thanks for listening. 
Now is the time to subscribe. If you haven't already, head to gotime.fm for all the ways. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter so you can get in on those unpopular opinion polls. We're at gotime.fm. Gerhard Lazu has been having some seriously good guests on Ship It!, He had the founding team from Dagger on for a candid conversation about Docker and what they're up to now. I mean, first me, for me, it was the defining experience in my career. You know, we we just, we talked about a lot. What would we do different? Oh, that worked really well. Let's do it again, even better. You know, basically one or the other. So it's, it's definitely has echoes, but, um, you know, it's cool to get a second chance at, at, uh, getting it better the second time. So, and, and you wonder kind of, okay, well, how much of all that was luck? I guess we'll find out. There's that element of like, we don't know what happens, even if, if you've done something similar before. So similar people with all this experience, doing it all over again in a new setting. The world is very different today than it was in 2013. So we still don't know, right? And you still don't know. You're like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to put this out in the world and see what happens. I'm going to work on this idea for a couple of years. And I think that's what, again, something that a lot of people miss. This has been refined. And there have been like mini launches and mini like shipping this for a long, long time until the point came when as Solomon said, I'm so glad it's finally out there. <laughs> this has been like in the making for a long, long time. That was Solomon Hikes on episode 48. Continue listening and subscribe to Ship It at changelog.com slash ship it slash 48. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen, to Breakmaster Cylinder for the fresh beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up, Chris continues our Maintenance Pro Max series with Johnny, Ian, and yours truly. This one started in the GoTime FM channel on Slack with a metaphor about painting on a blank canvas versus paint by numbers. Can you see where Chris is going with this? Find out next time on GoTime. Mm-hmm.